This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. You may know you're listening to this show along the Marketing Podcast Network, but did you know there are other great shows on MPN to help your business? Christy Heiler hosts a fantastic podcast called Own It. Christy, tell us more about the show. Own It is all about celebrating women and non-binary advertising agency owners. We talk about buying out of the Boys Club of Advertising because less than 1% of ad agencies are owned by women. And where can people subscribe? You can find the podcast at untilyouownit.com. We're also on the Marketing Podcast Network at marketingpodcast.net. And of course, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You heard her. Go subscribe. Well, hello and welcome to Uncorking a Story. I'm your host, Mike Carlin, and today I'm pleased to introduce you to Juliet Blackwell, the New York Times bestselling author of Off the Wild Coast of Brittany and the Vineyards of Champagne. That makes me thirsty. In addition to writing the beloved Witchcraft Mystery Series and the Haunted Home Renovation Series, she also co-authored the Agatha Award-nominated Art Lovers Mystery Series, with her sister. Her latest novel, The Paris Showroom, is available for pre-order now and will be published on April 19th. Here to talk about that book and so much more is today's guest, Juliet Blackwell. Welcome to Uncorking Story, Juliet. Oh, thank you for having me. I'm really pleased to be here. Well, I'm so pleased to have you. And I'm going to ask you the same question I ask everybody as we begin, which is, Juliet, where does your story begin? Oh, my goodness. Well, that's, that's, of course, we could, we could go on for hours about that. But um, my story as, as an author, I think, begins, as most authors do, with a love of reading. So, you know, as, as, as kids, I think just the ability to read and to lose oneself in a story is such a magical place. And, and I, like so many people, sort of found refuge um, in a library at various points in my life. Um, I actually did not consider actually writing. I mean, I wrote little kids stories, but I didn't consider really writing until I was much, much older. Mm-hmm. And um, I did it almost as a lark. I was, I was, I had a whole business that I was doing something completely different, an art business. And I just thought to myself, oh, it would be fun to write a story about this situation that I was in. And my sister, who's a, a professor of history, um, happened to be on sabbatical. So I sort of wrote her in and we wound up writing a book together. And that was the very first book that I published. So what, what year are we talking here? That was, oh, you know what? I should have <laughs> figured that one out. Um, I think it was 2006, maybe. Okay. So not that long ago. I mean, All right. for some of us. <laughs> so what were you, what was your life plan? Like before that point, it sounds like you're working in the art world, but what did you yeah. want to be when you grew up? You know, I, I, I'm not real good with plans. I'm more of a <laughs> spontaneous gal. So I stayed in, in school for a very long time. I studied anthropology um, and was getting my PhD, which I never finished, but I was getting a PhD in anthropology and, um, you know, was a, was a waitress to pay the bills and that kind of thing. And then I went on from there to, I studied social work for a bit and was a social worker, a school social worker. 
And then I got into painting, um, especially, I've always painted, I love to paint, um, but I painted faux finishes and murals. And, you know, a few years back, well, probably 15, 20 years back at this point, it was very big to paint everything to make it look like an, a Tuscan village. Mm -hmm. so, so I painted a lot of homes and made them look very Tuscan. <laughs> Um, back in the day. And that's, that's when, when I was, uh, I was on a working in the middle of the night, which I often did because you're always on a, we were always on, um, remodeling schedules and the painters are usually the last ones in. So I was working on a mansion in Pacific Heights about two in the morning with a friend of mine. Um, and we were the only ones in the mansion and it was a construction zone. And we kept hearing what sounded like someone walking overhead and I thought wow this would be a great place for a murder so that's why I wrote a murder mystery <laughs> now was was it somebody walking overhead was it was it an otherworldly thing walking never, overhead what was we it? we never figured it out we never figured it out we uh we you know snuck around it was most likely you know a window that had been left open or something like that but it's easy to let one's imagination run, especially at two in the morning when you're Yeah, tired. no, especially, right? <laughs> so it's interesting. I, I've talked to two uh, authors recently um, who told me about kind of otherworldly encounters. And one of yeah. them uh, was living in a haunted house while she was writing uh, her latest book. Um, and another was about, um, uh, she was a, an author who whose father would tell her uh, what he called real ghost stories um, about about kind of growing up in a log cabin during the uh, uh, during the Great Depression, um, and it was interesting to me in both of those situations how those experiences kind of wove were woven into their work. Um, uh -huh. You know, uh -huh. so that's it, yeah. but I think authors have, I think maybe we're just a little bit more um, open to the possibility of you know yeah. ghosts being real because our imagination it's good for our imaginations perhaps i i think so i think that any any author anyone who has those tendencies um filmmakers anybody who's in the storytelling business it's hard not to think about the possibilities right yeah. it's really really quite fun and so, so i did wind up writing one one mystery series that was about haunted haunted houses, renovating haunted houses. Yeah. The haunted home renovation series. Yeah, yeah. Um, so fun. yeah, when you started writing that book though, with, with your sister, which was the, essentially like the first book that you were writing, right. Um, what, what was that process like? You know, how did, you know, how did that idea come to you to, to write a book and rope your sister in? And what did you learn about yourself during that writing process? You know, that, that, was extraordinarily fun, I have to say. That was probably the most fun I've ever had with a book because I had no sense that we would actually get published. So I wasn't, that wasn't the purpose of it. Um, my sister lives in Virginia and I live in California. We're very, very close. Um, so, you know, in the modern world, it's nice that we can be in touch through emails and, and telephone calls and that sort of thing. And so this was just for years, we had passed books back and forth, like, you know, oh, you'll love this book or try this series or, you know, whatever, because we're both big readers. Um, and this was, again, this was a while ago. So it was when the cozy mysteries were first starting. I don't know mm -hmm. if you know that term or if you're, you're sure. listeners do. Um, but yeah, it's the kind of the, the funnier 
soft mysteries. You know, I guess somebody gets killed, so it's not particularly <laughs> right. soft. There's, but... a, there's a body somewhere. <laughs> right. <laughs> but you're not scared to death while you're reading it. it. Right. It's not particularly gruesome. Yeah. Yeah. It's not like the silence of the lambs. It's more like the silence of the clams or something like that. <laughs> I like that. Very horrible, good. Horrible joke. Horrible Very good. Joke. Very good. Um, yeah. So, so as I said, since I, I was in this, this mansion and, and doing this faux finishing and part of the faux finishing um, thing for me as a, as a painter, I had, I've never been formally trained in painting, but I did spend one summer in Florence kind of learning to grind my own paints and do that kind of thing. But I've always learned um, by imitating other painters. And when I was in Florence, there was a big uh, kerfuffle at the time about a painting in the Uffizi with, that some people believed to be a fake and others did not. And so I got really fascinated by the whole idea of faking uh, art and what it meant to create a fake masterpiece. And there are a lot of philosophical issues about it. If you appreciate it, for what it is, for the beauty and everything else, does it really matter if it's assigned Rembrandt or not and that kind of thing. Right. So um, so as I was doing this faux finishing job, I just, it occurred to me that it would be fun to have a character who had been kind of a natural forger, very, very good at art forgery um, as a youngster, but she got busted and she's been, she's now trying to go straight as a faux finisher. Um, but of course she gets dragged back into the underworld of fake fakes and forgers so yeah so that's so that's how the idea came about and yeah. what happened was I actually just wrote sat down and wrote a chapter I had never done it before I just thought oh that'd be fun let me see if I can do this and I, again I've read my whole life so you know that whole thing of oh it couldn't be that hard we could do better than that and then it's of course much harder than one thinks but um right. Anyway, I wrote a chapter and then I just emailed it to her and I said, this is really ridiculous, but I just wrote this chapter and wouldn't this be a fun story? And as I said, she's a professor. She's very good at ripping things apart. Um, and she just, you know, said she she used to track, track changes and changed everything and 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 said, how about this? What about that? Blah, blah, blah. And, um, and we went from there. I would write like a first draft and then she would rewrite it. And when I say rewrite, I mean, seriously rewrite. Yeah. Sometimes I would just be like, I have no idea how to get from point A to point B here. And she would fill in a scene or come up with something. Um, and yeah, and that's what we did. We just went back and forth. And it was so joyous because I was still working at my job and she was still, she was on sabbatical, but she was still doing her thing. And we didn't have uh you know uh, uh the idea of getting published so it was just for the fun of it and really just just creating that feel of and that um the creative feel of of going back and forth and spurring each other on and giving each other ideas and then we would also brainstorm a lot over the phone and that sort of thing so it was just sheer wouldn't this be fun and it was and so fun. then walk me through like pitching that to, I mean, were you, were you querying agents with that? I mean, when, when did you get start to think that, Hey, you know, maybe we should throw this out there and see if, if, if there's any commercial interest. Yeah. You know, that's what was so funny for me. I mean, I really backed into this. Um, we actually did start, I, I would say probably about three quarters of the way through the book. I was like, you know what? I think this is an actual book. 
Um, I think we should really finish this and see if we can sell it. But neither of us had any idea how to sell a book because we both, it, we had both done writing, but it was academic writing, which is a very different ballgame. Um, so I wound up going to, I, I did a little reading and at the time, if uh, uh, you still had agents listed in the big books, there was mm -hmm. like Jeff Herman's book of agents or something. And I remember standing in Barnes and Noble and looking through this big thing and how do you figure out an agent? You know, now everything's done by email. It's so much easier. Um, but I didn't know what a query letter was. I had to learn about all of these things. I had no idea. So um, I actually wound up going to uh, the Willamette Valley Writers Conference, mm -hmm. I think it's called, which was in Portland mm -hmm. or outside of Portland. And my aunt happens to live, happened to live on the other side of the Columbia River. So I thought, oh, I'll go visit my aunt and go to this conference and um, see what I can learn. And I was definitely a sponge. You know, that was a, that was the conference I needed at the time. Yeah. That was very explicit. There were a lot of agents there, a lot of publishers and people talking about exactly what they were looking for in a package in terms of pitching. And then we had, you had an opportunity to, to pitch to a certain number of agents one-on-one. -on -one. And I got a few requests for manuscripts from that. Didn't sell it at the time, but at least I had my, my sea legs by then of what sure. a query letter was and how to, how to go about it. Yeah, those conferences are so important, you know, versus yeah. kind of going in cold, you know, it shows the agents that, you know, you're committed if you're investing, you know, your money yeah. and your time and, and, you know, going to something like that. I've, I've heard from other people the same thing, which is, um, you know, it, it shows that you're serious and it's, it's a good way to make connections. But, you know, when you were saying, you know, right now everything's done over email, mm -hmm. makes it easier to reach out to agents. It also makes it very, uh, a lot easier for them to reject you. That's um, true. Which, which, <laughs> it's very quick rejections. Yes. It's, it's, if you want to be rejected fast, you know, send a query letter true. by email to an agent. Very true. Very true. You yeah. know, um, it's definitely a humbling experience, but um, it's very let's, humbling. Let's, let's talk about this, uh, the new book. Um, so I know that it's a, it's a World War II story. Um, tell me more about the Paris showroom and, and what the, you know, obviously you don't want to give too much away, but you know, what, what the book's about and how the idea came to you. Yeah, in fact, I was, as I was mentioning to you, I have a little show and tell for those who are watching. It's uh, the Paris showroom. It just came, it just, the boxes of the book just came. And so it's always exciting to open it up and see the artwork. Um, the story is actually, a, it's based on this, I, a story that I had never heard about World War II. And I'll, I'll back this up by saying, I write a lot of books that are based in France. And of course, World War II is still very alive in France. Um, anyone who spends any time there, you know, the, the older generation is now dying off, but they remember it very well. And there are so many memorials and so many, it's just a very alive, to me, every time I'm there, I'm, I'm amazed at how alive World War II is. Um, so, but I always thought, well, I'm not going to write a story about World War II in France because there are all these other things and there are so many World War II stories and what new, what could I say that's new and all that sort of thing. And I was in Paris and I, I read about um, this Leviton department store. It's a department store. It was a department store. And it was sort of a department store like like Ikea is how it's been described because it was very much for the working classes. It was um, not a fancy department store, but it was several stories high. Um, and they, the Nazis kept prisoners there. It was a Nazi prison camp. And I, I was like, 
there was a Nazi prison camp in Paris? Because it's right downtown. It's in the 10th arrondissement. It's not, you know, out on the outskirts or anything like that. It's right there. Um, And then there were two smaller camps as well, Bassano and Austerlitz. But in Levitan, they kept over 700 prisoners in the attic of this former department store that, of course, had been owned by a Jewish man who was um, forced to flee. So it was taken over by the Nazis and they um, they had their operation furniture, as they call it in English, um, to empty out Jewish businesses and homes of, of everything. I always thought they emptied the Jewish homes and businesses of valuable mm-hmm. art and jewelry, which they did, but they took everything. They took saucepans, they took light fixtures, they took every, they just stripped everything. And um, then they would bring them to this department store and all the prisoners were forced to clean and repair and, um, and sort and organize all of this loot. And then it was kind of packaged up and either sent back to Germany, like a, a lot of the basic stuff, the saucepans and things were sent to Germany um, for the, I guess, for the ordinary citizens. But the best stuff, of course, was kept um, kept in Leviton, and the the prisoners were forced to set it out like um, as if they were in a department store. And the Nazi elite would come through with their wives and mistresses and pick what they wanted of, you know, furs and clocks and antiques and just all sorts of things. Um, Anyway, it just it just struck me as such an odd story, and I asked a lot of friends. Um, my my fiance is is French, so um, I asked his friends and people who are Parisians who had never heard of this place, and so that also intrigued me. Like, how would you not know right. <laughs> that this had happened um, within your own city? Um, and actually, I have gone back to the building. I wasn't able to tour the building, but um, it's now an architectural firm. Unfortunately, because of COVID, they wouldn't let me in to, to tour it at the time. But it does now have a plaque on it that served, that it held prisoners. Um, but it's very understated. It's really not very much acknowledged. Yeah. And I found that really interesting. Yeah, but it sounds like you found yeah. some real white space for kind of like a fresh World War II story. Because, you know, there's so much, so much has been written about World War II. Um, yeah, no, exactly. I mean, and that's what I was looking for. I think that's why it was so intriguing to me. So in, in my story, it's, it's a woman who is um, held prisoner. She's not Jewish. She was accused of being a communist. And um, she has an estranged adult daughter. Well, she, a daughter just turned 21, who's living with her paternal grandparents who are very much um, cooperating with Nazis. So, so it's really the experience of the two of them, the mm-hmm. mother being imprisoned and the, the daughter out on the streets kind of you know, and they're both trying to get by, yeah. just like everybody. They're trying to survive and trying to figure it out. And I think it's all very bewildering. Whenever I write about any sort of wartime situation, I, I am reminded how bewildering it must have been for people. It, it's like now with Ukraine, right? It's like, what is going on? Right. <laughs> it's not, you know, now we look back with hindsight and we can see what was happening. But at the time, people are just being bombed or being arrested or whatever it is. And it's yeah. very bewildering to everyone, I think. Yeah. You know, fake news is not a new phenomenon, you know, no. it's, it's been used no. throughout the years to, uh, to manipulate behavior. And 
Yes. You know, again, you know, you, we look back and we we see things in black and white, winners, losers, good and bad. But you know, for the people in the middle of it, you know, when your country's occupied, yes, um, you know, you're you're. I think all of us are about self-preservation to some extent, and the way we go about doing that is, um, you know, uh, can be can be different than the way our neighbors go about doing it. Right. Um, yes. So, exactly. I mean, some interesting interesting moral dilemmas can come into play there. Exactly, exactly. I think that's what I'm interested in um, with any sort of war story. I'm particu not particularly interested in military history. I'm very interested in how people get by. Like, yeah. how do they eat? Do they pay taxes? You know, like what, what's going on? Like the nitty gritty of every day. How do you get through the day um, when all of this is happening? And then what, what it means personally for people. And in my story, the main character, Kaposin, who is the prisoner, um, is she, she almost, she's got a number of very big regrets in her life. And she almost feels like it's divine retribution for her to be imprisoned. And I, I thought that was kind of an interesting thing that occurred as I was writing her was that she was, she was feeling it very personally as if she didn't deserve better. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that was interesting. You know, what strikes me as I'm listening to you talk is, um, you know, when you write, you, you can kind of observe, I mean, even though it's like a made up culture, right. But you can observe culture from kind of afar, right. you can immerse yourself yeah. into another world and get lost into it and you're creating it. But, you know, you were mentioning before how you were, you know, studying anthropology, you were getting a PhD in it. Um, there's a little bit of an anthropologist inside each writer, I think, isn't there? I think in terms so. Of, yeah. yeah. Tell me, tell me about that and what your fascination with anthropology was. You know, and it's funny you should say that I have met so many anthropologists who are now, um, authors <laughs> and I, th I think you're right. I think, um, there's something in, um, in some of us that make us very observant, very interested in observing how people interact, how they react. Um, you know, and it's not to say it's better or worse than anyone else, of course, but I think that there is, you have to be extremely observant and, and, um, and intrigued by, by what you're seeing, right. Yeah. You have to be, you know, what's, what's going on and how's it going on. And, um, uh, yeah, all those little details. And I think like the sensory details of it and the, the everyday, the day-to-day -day stuff. Yeah. Yeah. And there's, there's a curiosity that comes with it too. So it's, it's being observant, but also being curious enough to ask what if, Yes. You know, as now as yeah. an anthropologist, you can't really interject your own imagination into things, right? Because you shouldn't be projecting right. anything <laughs> that you're not observing, because it really is anthropology is really about observational research. But it is, yes. you know, on the creative side, you know, the what if I think are the, the two biggest words every author should kind of have in their tool belt, not to write on the page, but just to keep in their imagination. You know, it's like, well, what if there was this department store and, you know, a story was kind of built around it um right so it's no, a good one-two punch i agree with you i think it's um yeah my my fiance always makes fun of me when we travel in europe because everywhere we not everywhere but many places we go i'll say oh look that house is for sale oh wouldn't it be fun to live here and he he used to take me sort of seriously like 
like, you want to live here? And I was like, no, but just imagine what it would right. be to live here. And that I think that's exactly what you're saying. Like, yeah. what if you lived here? How would that work? You know, are you in a village or in a city or, um, yeah, I'm, I'm very interested in that. And I'm also very interested, and this I think comes from anthropology as well. I'm interested in the outsider view of things, you know, feeling a bit of a fish out of water. Mm -hmm. um, this, this book actually is about two French women who are French, who've been there, born and raised. But all my other books are always, are, have been about Americans in, in France, mm -hmm. um, because that's very much my experience. And I, but I do enjoy that sort of being the, the fish out of water and how does that work and how do people respond to you and how do you respond to them. Um, but in some ways, the Paris showroom, Capucine, because she's not Jewish, she's one of the, there are, most of the prisoners are Jewish. Um, so she does, she does feel like a bit of an outsider there as well. Yeah. Um, so the book's on sale April 19th. Uh, assume it's available wherever people can buy books. Yes, it is. Yes. Very yes. Cool. Very much. Very cool. Well, Juliet, I've got some questions for you that I ask um, uh, most of my guests here. Um, these are my hot seat questions and uh, they're meant to be fun. So uh, no need to stress over them. First one <laughs> is uh, taking a trip back in time to when you were a child. Um, what were some of your favorite TV shows when you were a kid? Oh boy. When I was a kid, uh, uh, well, this, this will, yeah. <laughs> Bewitched. Oh, uh, Bewitched. okay. So first question, new Darren or old Darren? Um, oh, <laughs> I, I'd say, I'd say old Darren. Gotta definitely. go with old Darren. Yeah, only one yeah definitely, definitely. Old Darren. Darren, I believe was an advertising man. If I'm not, uh, he not was, mistaken. yes, he was indeed. Indeed. Yeah. That, um, was, that was a great show. Um, that was a, that was a fun show for sure. Did you ever see the um, the uh, motion picture Bewitched with um, Will Ferrell and Nicole Kidman? I never did. I never did. Did you? Yeah. you I, did, I did. I did. There were some funny parts. Yeah. Um, but much like the Chips movie that came out a few years ago, <laughs> okay. lost a little bit of the original kind of oh, campiness of it so interesting yes um, yeah my dad not, loved chips i remember he loved that show yeah your dad loved chips i yeah. loved chips my yeah. brother and i if we were good in church my mother used to say uh you guys can watch chips tonight um, oh wow and nice. we thought we thought we were ponch and john you know riding our little bicycles you know up and down you know plantation florida that all that that sounds so, very all right bewitched yeah. Any, anything else come to mind in addition to bewitched you know the other one that that somebody reminded me of recently was dark shadows oh my gosh yeah with the vampire guy yeah it was like a um almost like a soap opera but it with a vampire. Was a soap yes. opera. it was every day oh, totally for like dark half shadows. an hour yeah. or something yeah and, and i wasn't supposed to watch it my mother said i was too young and it would scare me um but i had two older sisters and so they got to watch it so i would have to sneak in and it did scare me but in a i was fascinated and scared at the same time that, that's another one that they made into a movie with johnny depp i, I never saw that but <laughs> and they've done they it tried. as well they did a, they? A, a reboot of the soap opera like in the I don't know when 80s or something, but I haven't seen it. Yeah, this was the original. Yeah, the original. Uh -huh. um, all right. How about this? So let's turn from TV to music. So if we were following you around as a teenager, what would we find you listening to in terms of albums, cassettes, CDs, you know, depending on how you were getting your music? 
As a teenager, well, it was definitely cassettes then. And it was, if you were lucky, you got a mixtape from your friends. I was part of the mixtape generation. Of I will course. Say. I will say. Um, what were we listening to? I mean, it was Eagle's Journey. Um, my sister used to love ABBA. She had ABBA okay. going constantly. Um, in fact, my, again, my father, my father's living with me now. So um, he, he has recently discovered ABBA, which is really interesting. So I'm sort of thrust back into my mid, mid uh, you know, middle school days <laughs> every time I hear it. Every time I hear they it. Haven't, they had an album come out last year. Um, a, a, a new one, a, right? An album of new ABBA music, and it sounds good. My daughter is a yeah. big ABBA fan. We, um, yeah. when my kids were younger, we, you know, we wouldn't listen to Raffi and and all the the stuff uh -huh. that you know kids listen to. You know, my my wife and I were like, okay, they're listening to the Beatles. We're gonna put on um, ABBA was a big one in rotation, and they used to love Dancing Queen, Fernando. Oh yeah. Um, they used to argue over what song we'd play next. <laughs> That's great. Um, but it always oh, took them. They love the Mamma Mia movies. And um, yes. But yeah. So my, my daughter told me she, she was home from college. She's like, you know, there's a new ABBA album out. I'm like, what? They, they, like, I, at least one of them I thought was dead, but apparently they were all all still around. That's um, amazing. Yeah. The, the other one I listened to a lot was when I was a little bit younger, not not full teenager, was the Monkees. Oh, sure. Again, my, my sisters were older and they introduced me. They had all the albums. So, and we had a very old record player, um, but that it was a portable, the little portable record yep. players. And I would just listen to those albums over and over. Yeah. But they were, they were, they were great. My, I had a roommate in college um, who had a, had a um, copy, I guess the monkeys in their later years, you know, they tried to do what the Beatles did and they tried to get a little psychedelic. Um, and they, uh -huh. they created this really weird album. Um, oh, really? <laughs> and I mean, and my roommate who was really into like alternative music, you know, played it for me. I'm like, this is not, I'm a believer. You know, this was something that was like way different, but yeah, uh, there is, wow. there is a black market monkeys, you know, bootleg wow. album out there somewhere. I don't think I've heard that one. <laughs> yes. No, it's not. It's, it's definitely not what you think. Okay. Number three. Um, so, you know, you mentioned kind of being an anthropologist. You also mentioned um, working as a waitress. Uh, what did you learn about people while working as a waitress? Oh, I think any, any, um, any staff, restaurant staff would tell you. <laughs> you learn a lot about people. You learn to, I think, to kind of judge people quickly, which can be, you know, which isn't always a good thing. But I think being able to sort of assess a, a table and the interactions between people and that sort of thing is is good. I learned a lot of patience. I learned um, to use humor to diffuse situations often. Um, you know, I mean, the restaurants can be high stress, but they're also generally a place that people go to have fun and relax. Mm -hmm. So if you can kind of help people segue into the <laughs> relaxation situation is usually usually a much much better because they come in sometimes stressed i found sure sure no. yeah i get it yeah um okay how about this one this one's also, more you, about, sorry yeah. one more thing you yeah, learn to apologize for the kitchen <laughs> there's, a, <laughs> there's a lot of taking heat for the kitchen <laughs> i'm yeah i'm sure i'm sure and i uh you know it was, it was interesting i was down in florida last week with my parents and um we went out to, my parents are 88 89 um, there's always a story that happens whenever we go out, but 
we uh, we went to to a restaurant for dinner. We met three other couples. So it was everyone's couples, and I'm there single. Um, but the food was coming. It was it wasn't coming out fast enough for everybody. Now these are people in their late 80s, so they get yeah. hungry and they get cranky. Yeah. Um, and it's like, I just, I, I did not envy our server because like every five minutes, somebody was bothering her about when the food's coming. Um, and you know, I could see where the job requires a tremendous amount of patience. Yes. Yes. I think so. I think it does. Um, how about this? How do you feel when you're looking at a blank piece of paper or a blank computer screen, depending on how you write? So your, your goal is to write something or to start writing something, nothing in front of you. How do you feel? I love it, actually. I love the blank slate. I like the blank slate a lot. I have a one of my best writing friends, Rachel Heron, who's a great writer. Um, she loves revising. <laughs> she hates the first draft and loves re- revising. And I love the first draft and I hate revising. So we always <laughs> we always lean on each other um, during our harder moments. But yeah, I find it very exciting because everything's possible. You know, it's before I've before I've written it, it's still the best book I will ever write. And while mm-hmm. I'm writing it, at the end of my first draft, I'm like, ugh, this isn't what I wanted. I don't think this is what I wanted. And I'm too close to it then. It's really hard to, to see it for me once it's there, because I've been yeah. working with it so long. Um, but at the beginning, it's like, it's like a little baby. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. That's right. And then you send it to an editor and yes. then they tell you about your baby. Yes, <laughs> exactly. And then you see how cute or uncute your baby might be. Yes. Um, yes. Uh, what lessons about writing do you feel like you had to learn the hard way? Uh, to keep a, a series Bible. That's a big one. I have um, a couple of ongoing series and one, I think I have 11 books in it. And it has a lot of devoted fans and they read that series sometimes you know, over and over and over. And if I make a mistake, like forget something from the first book, which I wrote 15 years ago, mm-hmm. they will remember and remind me. And that's, that's a little brutal. Right. Right. <laughs> so yeah, I would just keep a, a good ongoing series Bible, especially, especially for a series, you know, yeah, your fans will keep you yeah. honest. Yes. They will keep yes, you honest. Um, and then if you could, if you could write a letter to your younger self and mail it um, so that you can give your younger self some advice, uh, kind of with everything you've learned along the way in, in your career, what are some of the things you would tell your younger self? How would you, you kind of address your younger self? Oh, that's a really good question. Um, I'm glad you told me not to stress over it because this is the sort of thing I would stress over. <laughs> yeah, no, no stress, no, <laughs> no wrong answer. No wrong answer. No, I, I think I think the biggest thing for me would be um, to not worry so much about everything. You know, I, I've spent, like a lot of people, I guess, I spend a lot of, I have spent a lot of my life worrying. And it's almost always not the thing I should have been worrying about anyway. <laughs> it's like the wrong thing if you're going to worry. Um, so, you know, to just, to to be able to, be in the moment more and just enjoy what you have, or if it's a hard thing, also be in the moment, um, but not spend a lot of time and energy worrying about things. Yeah. That would be my biggest. My biggest yeah, not, not an uncommon answer. Trying to oh, start, really? Trying oh. to re- reassure yourself that things are going to work out okay. 
Yeah. Um, yeah. There yeah. you go. Uh, yeah. I've got a uh, bonus question because I'm looking in the background and I see a bottle of Maker's Mark oh, and I see yeah. a bottle of Frangelico. Um, <laughs> yes. yes. So I'm curious to know if, if you uh, think that Frangelico looks like a bottle of Mrs. Buttersworth. <laughs> it's so funny you should say that. It does. It totally does. Because <laughs> I've been staring at it for a half hour now, and I'm thinking to myself, why did she have, did she have maple syrup, maple syrup, or fake maple syrup on on her counter? And I'm realizing, oh no, that's what Italian people put in their coffee. Um, <laughs> so funny. That's a, at least that's what my Italian grandmother put in her coffee. Oh, okay. There you go. There you go. So there well, you I, go. I noticed your corks in your background. Yes, and, many a cork know, back there. Uncorking a, a mystery, and my fiance is actually a wine importer. So, oh, all right. So I should have a whole bunch of wine behind me. That would make more sense. Probably. There you go. Yeah. No, these are these are all the stories I've uncorked. And uh, yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> I love it. I love. I wish that. I could say that I, I drank all of those, but I did not. Oh. <laughs> it's really just a uh, a picture I bought from uh, <laughs> from a stock photography. Set. I like it though. It's good. It's very good. So yeah. my liver thanks me for not drinking all those bottles of wine. Well, that's probably um, true. Yes. So that's that. Well, Julia, this has been a fun conversation. Yeah, um, you, I, I, imagine, I imagine some of my listeners might want to look up some more information on you. So do you have social media handles or a website that you want to throw out there for them? To yeah, support? the website is julietblackwell.net or .com. We'll get you there. Um, and uh, I am on, you, on, um, on Twitter and Facebook and Instagram. And I think it's either Juliet Blackwell or Juliet Blackwell author at all of those. So all right. yeah. I'm sure they will find you. And as a reminder, the Paris showroom will be available April 19th and it is available for pre-order now. Um, so mark your dates though, buy the book. It's going to be a good read. Okay. Well, thank you, Mike. I really appreciate this. Thank you for doing this for readers and for authors. All right. It's thank really you. Nice thing.